Before we dive into today's episode, I want to tell you about a free three-act worksheet to help you structure your story. Whether you're a plotter or a pantser, a novelist or short fiction writer, this three-act worksheet will help you navigate your material and even begin each new story with a better plan. Download yours at nancypinuccio.com forward slash act. Stop getting stuck in the middle of your draft. Go grab this free worksheet, nancypinuccio.com forward slash act. A retrospective narrator is looking back and reinterpreting or confronting the past because it has special, significant meaning for him or her, a meaning that has often eluded the narrator until the particular telling of the story. Writer Unleashed is for you, a writer who has a story you want to bring onto the page and into the hearts and minds of readers. I'm Nancy Pinuccio, writer, editor, and writing coach. And each week, we'll explore techniques, mindsets, and inspiration for writing stories readers can't put down. Thanks for spending some time with me today. Now let's begin. When we write about what happened, We're supposed to be bound by what actually occurred, right? But our memories are not recordings that can be verified. Memory is a construct of the imagination. It's not reliable. The past, memory, is altered by the life we've lived since, by the life your character has lived since. What a character tells from memory is altered by the present. Even in a straightforward story where we never leave the scene or moment, what a character writes from memory is altered by the life he or her has lived since. It's altered by the present. Now, the process of writing memoir is a constant retrospection. This is what happened, and who I was, how I was, and what this means now suggest who I am now and will be. This is especially true in memoir, but many fiction stories are autobiographical in nature, with an adult narrator looking back on the past. So the narrator is moving between the present and the past. The biggest challenge with retrospective narrators is integrating reflection, insight, and gained wisdom. Now, often writers will be motivated to write based on something that happened in the past, but they won't make the connection between who the narrator was and who they are now. There's a collection of past events, but there's no introspection and reflection on those past events. So it's just a collection of events that happened with no insight or the narrator's own culpability in what happened. 
So finding the right balance between reflection and action is essential to keep the story moving while also allowing for meaningful insights that build over the course of the story. It all boils down to when and how your narrator chooses to tell the story. If you're writing from a narrator who's looking back on or reconciling his or her past, keep these questions in mind. Four questions. Number one, why is this person telling the story? Why now? Number two, who's telling this story? Who is he or she now? Number three, when is the story being narrated? How much time has elapsed between the event and the telling? For example, if the events involve a 13-year-old, when is the story being narrated? Are we listening to an adult, an older teenager, an older person? How much time has passed between the event and the telling? And question number four, and perhaps most important, at what stage of life is this character in? Happy? Lonely? Certain? Uncertain? regretful? If these things aren't part of the story, then there's no need to write from a retrospective viewpoint. Just because you're telling the story in first person does not mean it has to be a retrospective narrator. You can just shorten the gap between the event and the storytelling. Just keep a straight past tense. For example, if the story involves a 13-year-old and you're writing from the 13-year-old's perspective, Just keep a straight past tense and close the gap between the event and the storytelling. So the 13-year-old will be narrating the events as they're happening. With a retrospective story, your narrator is trying to come to terms with something that happened in the past, especially some kind of trauma. So you'll need to know where they are now as they retell their past. Memoir, by definition, is retrospective. The author is telling the story having already lived it. But what's the meaning in the lived experience? In Katherine Harrison's memoir, The Kiss, we meet her at the age of 20 having a secret incestuous affair with her long-lost father. She dips deeper into her childhood as she seeks to understand what made the affair with her father possible, but she's telling it much later in adulthood when she's married and has children of her own. Lucy Greeley's memoir, Autobiography of a Face, recounts her struggle with facial disfigurement due to a rare cancer. And she narrates her life before and after the diagnosis and describes her life from the age of nine to adulthood. So she's retelling the past, having gone through several reconstructive surgeries and struggling with the need to be accepted by her peers, by wanting to be beautiful, wanting to be loved. She's convinced that she'll never find a romantic partner due to her face. And after 18 years and nearly 30 operations, she's able to reconstruct her face. However, 
she learns that that did not solve all her troubles. And so as the book draws to a close, she comes to terms with the realization that fixing her face does not solve her low self-esteem and her feelings of being unlovable. She begins questioning her beliefs about physical beauty, and ultimately, she learns to love herself. So it's a story about how she came to love herself. It's ultimately about self-love and self-acceptance. In Margaret Atwood's novel, Cat's Eye, the narrator, Elaine Risley, is in her 50s, in the present of the story, returning to her hometown of Toronto for a retrospective of her paintings. The main plot, however, involves her childhood, particularly her relationship with her friend Cordelia. Sue Silverman, who wrote the memoirs Because I Remember Terror Father, I Remember You, and Lovesick, calls this the voice of innocence and the voice of experience. The voice of innocence is essentially telling us what happened, this happened, then this, then this. So the voice of innocence tells us the surface events. It's the horizontal plot. But the voice of experience seeks to understand what it all means, what the ramifications and consequences of past actions are. The experienced voice gives insight and a fuller awareness of what happened. The present is informed by the past, but the past is also being recontextualized by the present. So it's not just a collection of past events. There's no reason to have a character looking back on the past if there isn't some reflection. So with retrospection, we have the voice of innocence with the voice of experience. You know how you can have different points of view in a third-person story? Well, the equivalent for retrospective narrators is what Sue Silverman calls different depths of view different depths of view, because it's the same narrator, but different voices, who I was and who I've become. Okay, the question is, how do you bring both voices into your story? How do you know when to use the innocent voice and when to use the experienced voice? Well, the good news is it's flexible. You can use one or the other at any time. You don't have to start in one voice before switching to the other, but you can incorporate both within the same page, within the same paragraph, or even within one sentence. Ethan Kanan incorporates both at key points in his novella, Batorzag and Zerulam. I'll give you an example in a minute. So you can incorporate both within the same page or paragraph, or you can alternate. That's what Margaret Atwood does in Cat's Eye. She alternates between the innocent voice and the experienced voice of her main character. So she alternates between the past and the present. Here's an example from the character's past told from the innocent voice. Cordelia and I are riding on the streetcar, going downtown, as we do on winter Saturdays. The streetcar is muggy with twice-breathed air and the smell of wool. 
Cordelia sits with nonchalance, nudging me with her elbow now and then, staring blankly at the other people with her gray-green eyes, opaque and glinting as metal. She can outstare anyone, and I am almost as good. We're impervious. We scintillate. We are 13. Now, the interesting thing about this novel is that as Elaine narrates the novel, she always speaks in the present tense as if experiencing each event in the moment. So she narrates all events past and present, focusing on the thoughts, feelings, and understandings she has at that moment. So she separates the innocent voice with the experienced voice, and they're both told in the present tense. However, in the sections set in the present of the story with the older narrator, she does reinterpret her past. Sometimes she just reaches back into her past. For example, in the second chapter, she's in her present day, in her 50s, back in her hometown of Toronto for this retrospective of her art in a gallery, and she decides to go incognito to take a look at the gallery and to see it from the outside. And on her way to the gallery, she comes to a wall of plywood that's concealing a demolition. And she comes across a flyer for her retrospective with a photo of her with a mustache drawn on it. Here's the passage. As it is, I study the mustache and think, that looks sort of good. The mustache is like a costume. I examine it from several angles, as if I'm considering buying one for myself. It casts a different light. I think about men and their facial hair and the opportunities for disguise and concealment they have always at their disposal. I think about mustache-covered men and about how naked they must feel with the thing shaved off, how diminished a lot of people would look better in a mustache. Then suddenly I feel wonder. I have achieved finally a face a mustache can be drawn on, a face that attracts mustaches, a public face, a face worth defacing. This is an accomplishment. I have made something of myself, something or other, after all. I wonder if Cordelia will see this poster. I wonder if she'll recognize me despite the mustache. Maybe she'll come to the opening. She'll walk in through the door and I will turn wearing black as a painter should, looking successful, holding a glass of only moderately bad wine. I won't spill a drop. Okay, so here she's reaching back into the past, but it's very pointed We've already been introduced to Cordelia, who we learn as the novel moves forward, is the main antagonist. Here's another passage from the present, from the experienced voice. This is my old route home from school. I used to walk along this sidewalk, behind or in front of the others. Between these lampposts, my shadow on the winter snow would stretch ahead of me, double shrink again and disappear, the lamps casting their halos around them like the moon in fog. 
Here is the lawn where Cordelia fell down backward, making a snow angel. Here is where she ran. The houses are the same houses, though, no longer trimmed in peeling white winter-grade paint, no longer down at the heels post-war. The sandblasters have been here, the skylight people, inside the Benjamina trees and tropical climbers have taken over, ousting the mangy African violets once nurtured on kitchen windowsills. I can see through these houses to what they used to be. I can see the colors that used to cover the walls, dusty rose, muddy green, mushroom, and the chintz curtains no longer there. What time do they really belong in, their own or mine? Okay, now most of the story takes place in the past, during her childhood, but both present and past are written in present tense. The past doesn't include any reflection from the older narrator, but the present does reflect on the past. So she alternates between the innocent voice and the experienced voice, but the innocent voice takes us through most of the narrative. That's where the real story is. In Ethan Kanan's novella, Batorzag and Zellerulam, he blends both voices in key parts of the story. He begins the story like this. In 1973, the year everything changed in our family, my older brother Clive competed for the mathematics championship of William Howard Taft High School in Shaker Heights, Ohio. So already we know that he's telling the story from having already experienced it. And then a few pages later, he says, we always suspected that something was wrong with Clive, but our suspicions were muddled, especially in those days, by his brilliance. He didn't talk much, and when he did, he used words like azigus and chemism. So he narrates a lot of this novella from the perspective of his younger self, the innocent voice. So he tells us what happened. We learn that Clive has a best friend, Elliot, and that Clive also has a girlfriend hiding in the basement where she sleeps behind a Philco box not far from the ping pong table, and that the narrator, William, has a crush on her. Here's an example of the innocent voice of the narrator. That year was the first Clive and I went to the same school, and in the fall, our mother took me aside. You and Clive are different, she said to me as we were tie-dyeing t-shirts in the bathroom. You don't have to do the things Clive did. She dunked the knotted shirt in her mixing bowl, which was filled with yellow dye. How do you mean? Clive's unusual, she said. I just want you to know that. I'm sure your friends at Taft will be different than his. Your brother does some unusual things. Which ones do you mean? Maybe we should use some magenta here, she said. What do you think? I watched her wring the yellow from the cloth. Which ones, I said. Oh, ones we wouldn't be proud of, things you wouldn't do. You know what I mean. No, I don't. We filled the bathtub and hung the knotted shirts on a line above it while she filled the mixing bowl with dye. I watched the yellow drip from the shirts and spread through the water. You and your brother are different, she said quietly. That's all. 
I tied up another shirt. A lot of my friends shoplift, I said, with my back turned to her. Billy DeSales got caught once. So this is the voice of innocence. He's relaying what happened, the surface events. But we don't have the experienced voice interpreting this particular exchange. Towards the end, he blends both voices. Things were changing so fast in 1973 that I admire my parents for trying to keep up. They were well-meaning people who were accepting what they could one arena at a time, and I think it was a difficult period for them, especially for our father. What he found when he pulled back the Filco box in search of the ping-pong ball was my brother and Elliot, asleep on the folded blankets that were Sandra's bed, naked, their arms entwined. For a moment, nobody moved. Then they began struggling with the blankets. But suddenly, Clive calmed, and presently, Elliot did too, both of them straightening their backs and composing their expressions until they sat upright before us, placid and still, the way monks sat as they froze to death. But Torzag, my brother said, Zerulam, said Elliot. Our father's arm flashed, and Clive flew back from the impact of the blow, hitting the wall with the loose wings of his shoulders and then crumpling. Elliot hugged his knees. Clive shook his head and let his mouth fall open, and then he turned to me standing behind our father with the ping-pong paddle in his hand. Flecks of blood streaked his tongue. Our father moved quickly to his knees, and though nobody in our family had ever prayed before, so far as I knew, that was what he did. He prayed leaning forward and clasping his two hands together in the hollow of his neck, his eyes closed, on his knees, on the rolled blankets. And then my brother, the genius, the dope smoker, the disguiser of languages, my brother, the faggot, leaned forward too, but he did not put his hands together. He merely lowered his head. And then Elliot did the same. And I knew from their nodding that they were weeping. I recognized with something like the profundity of religion that this was a sea change in our family and the great unturning of my brother's life. And though I moved to my knees as well and put down the paddle, I felt no tears. All I could think of was that now was the beginning of my own ascendance. For so long, I had known something was going to happen to Clive, and finally, it had. The inevitability of it had always been a half-hidden secret to me, a fact that persisted just beyond where I could give it voice. Now, at last, as I bowed my head, I recognized deep in my own character as the fleeting, ghostly shape of a wish, and for this, fifteen years later— in a stifling room at Columbia Presbyterian Hospital in Manhattan, where the doctors told me I had better come on a late-night flight to say goodbye to my brother, I wept and wept and wept. Okay, so a retrospective narrator is looking back and reinterpreting or confronting the past because it has special significant meaning 
for him or her, a meaning that has often eluded the narrator until the particular telling of the story. For Elaine Risley, she's confronting the cruelty of girlhood friendships. In The Kiss, Katherine Harrison is trying to figure out what void in her childhood made it possible for her to have an affair with her father. In Ethan Kanan's novella, Bador Zagan Zerulam, he's grappling with guilt. He's examining the consequences of his past actions. He's an adult looking back on his childhood. His brother has died from AIDS, or at least that's what's implied, and he feels deep regret for that moment in the basement. Not only because he led his father behind the Philco box, thinking Sandra was there, but because he felt elation at becoming the favored son. So it's in the retelling that the character derives meaning from the past. It's the character trying to make deeper and deeper sense of what happened, or deeper and deeper sense of their part in what happened. Okay, so let's recap. We talked about the two voices in any retrospective story, the voice of innocence, who tells what happened, and the voice of experience, who reinterprets what happened, who I was, who I am now. You can alternate between both voices, as Margaret Atwood does in Cat's Eye, or you can integrate them, as Ethan Kanan does in his novella. A retrospective narrator needs to be looking back with reason. So look at each instance and ask what it's doing there. You don't want nostalgia for the trivial. You don't want random details or events that aren't rooted in the story. It's not enough that it occurred long before. Because if every moment is burdened with significance, the reader can't see the past for the past. So when you write a draft of a story, a memoir, or essay that uses retrospection, look at each instance and ask yourself what it's doing there. Is it an intrusive, needless time jump that jars us from the scene? Is it focused on the matter at hand? Or does it lead us away from what's actually at stake? Is it an honest deepening of understanding given the perspective of years? Or is it forced or obvious? Is it necessary to the story itself? So ask yourself these four questions. Number one, why is this person telling the story? Why now? Number two, who's telling this story? Who is this person now? Is it an adult, an older teenager, or an older person? Number three, when is the story being narrated? How much time has passed between the event and the telling? And number four, at what stage of life is he or she in? Happy, lonely, certain, uncertain? Our memories are flawed and mutable. They're rewritten each time we tell or retell them. Our memories are shaped as much by what comes after as by what actually happened. 
I'm going to leave you with a quote by Eudora Welty. The events in our lives happen in a sequence of time, but in their significance to ourselves, they find their own order. A timetable, not necessarily, perhaps not possibly chronological. The time as we know it subjectively is often the chronology that stories and novels follow. It is the continuous thread of revelation. It is the continuous thread of revelation. A retrospective story tells us who the narrator is now. So there you have it. Thanks for hanging out with me today. And if you know any writers who need some support in their writing, please share this episode or the Writer Unleashed podcast in general. And if you love what you're listening to, subscribe on your favorite listening platform and please leave me a review. Reading how this podcast impacts your writing truly lights me up and helps me create topics for the show. Till next time, keep writing and I'll talk to you soon.